welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. In episode 58 today, we're going to be looking into a story of one of our more notorious convicts, one Alexander Pierce. Pierce was one of very few convict escapees from Macquarie Harbour who survived attempting to reach the settled districts. It was a truly epic feat to have traversed mountain range after mountain range in Tasmania's cold and near constantly rain-drenched west, often through almost impenetrable forest, wet and boggy high plains, and the dreaded horizontal scrub. But on his first escape attempt from Macquarie Harbour, he was the only survivor of the eight men that absconded together, and his survival was only possible because he resorted to cannibalism. And once a cannibal, always a cannibal, it seems. So a rather ghastly tale follows, but it's a big story and it may take more than one episode. So we'll start today looking at who Pierce was and how he found himself at the dreaded Macquarie Harbour penal settlement of secondary punishment, before moving on to how Pierce's shocking story unfolded. Before I begin, thanks to Alan Jay, who has set up a regular contribution to support the show on PayPal. I didn't know you could do that, so that was a lovely surprise, since I've closed down the Patreon account, which used to allow that. Thanks, Alan. Thanks also to Ian H., who sent through a second contribution. Also to Kerry W. and Penny G. You're all so kind to sponsor the Australian Histories podcast. I'm not as regular with the output these days, having to squeeze the research in between other commitments, but I still love doing the discovery, so it's good to know you want me to keep going. I'll just mention, too that most of the information I've used in this episode has come from the 2002 book by Paul Collins called Hell's Gates, and he in turn acknowledges the earlier thorough work done by Dan Sprod in Alexander Pierce of Macquarie Harbour, written in the 1970s. Because Sprod's book is now pretty old, most copies seem to be kept in rare book collections, and so I was unable to access a copy directly, but a lot of the related documents, and of course many newspaper articles from the time and later, are available online. As always, I'll provide my reference list on the Australian Histories podcast website. So now let's start by learning a little about the notorious convict number 102, Alexander Pierce. We spoke about the convict system in the Cascades episodes, numbers 26 and 27, including a little of why and how it was established in Australia, and some information on the numbers involved. So if the concept of the British convict system in Australia is unfamiliar to you, maybe head back to the Cascades episodes and listen to those first before coming back to this story, just to put everything in context. But as a generalisation, we could divide the convicts who were sent to the Australian penal colonies into two groups. Those who were able to take advantage of the awful situation they found themselves in, taking up opportunities that may not have been available to them in the old country once they were given their ticket of leave or had fully served their sentences. Many went on to own land, run businesses, create new families and settle into a more stable and productive life after serving their time. Very few ever returned to their families and hometowns back in Britain, though, instead making their family's future an Australian one. But there was a second group of convicts, those who had more difficulty or more bad luck in not being able to adhere to the regulations of their convict existence. 
leading to additional punishments over and again. They may have been particularly violent criminals or thought unreformable or simply uninterested or too undisciplined to toe the line, and such convicts were bound to keep reoffending, even as they undertook their original sentence. Of course, there would have been some in this group who were mentally ill or addicted to drink, and Collins suggests that drink was a problem for Pierce. Unable to knuckle down, do their sentence and find ways to leave their criminal shackles behind, such convicts would become ever more troublesome for the authorities and for the others trying to build a new life in the evolving penal colonies. To begin with, Alexander Pierce's story sounds fairly typical, right up until the Macquarie Harbour escape attempt that first brought him some notoriety. So let's have a look at how he found himself a convict, sentenced to transportation in Van Diemen's Land. Pierce was born in Ireland's northeast, County Monaghan, probably in 1790. There doesn't seem to be much known about his early years, but he probably hailed from a poor, rural, Irish Catholic community. Working as a labourer, he could barely read or write, and his prospects of a fruitful and harmonious happy life were poor right from the start. To be transported, the humane alternative to the previously common death sentence for theft, Pierce is likely to have had previous dealings with the legal system. But having been found guilty of stealing six pairs of shoes, so that's a crime for financial gain, seeing as six pairs was more than anyone would need to wear at any one time, he was sentenced to seven years' transportation. Pierce arrived in Hobart on the Castle Forbes in February of 1820. As we have discussed in past episodes, in those early days, the convicts arriving in Hobart, once they disembarked, were not housed in any secured jail. Instead, they were assigned work, either on government projects or under the supervision of a private master, as labour on their farm or business. Their suitability for these allocations was assessed by their behaviour on the ship on the way out, and by any useful work skills they may have had before being convicted. The rules of conduct and work expectations would have been explained to the new arrivals, along with warnings of the harsh physical punishments that could be expected if they behaved badly. And there were a good number of minor behaviours that would fall into this category and warrant punishment, from using bad language to drinking or missing the mandatory church service on Sunday. And of course, if they failed to work diligently or deserted their post or broke curfew, for example. Their government or private provisioning arrangements were outlined and they were appraised of the opportunities they might take to work for personal income outside of the mandated work hours. They might have opportunities in this system that they could never get in a closed prison. With little government accommodation available, some would even need to find their own accommodation in Hobart at this time. So their introduction to the convict life in Hobart was a far cry from being shackled in a prison hulk, for example, and being constantly confined. Disciplined men might find they could serve their sentence in relative comfort compared to being incarcerated in a crowded jail or prison hulk, but for those with less self-control, the temptations around them in the community, including access to alcohol, must have made staying on the straight and narrow difficult, despite the harsh punishments meted out to those who failed to abide by the rules. While the ship's records describe Pierce only as quiet, meaning he didn't cause trouble and attract any punishment on board, Pierce was one who would go on to have self-control behaviour difficulties in the weird sort of open-air prison that was operating in Hobart. Allocated convict number 102 in this new world, he struggled to keep out of trouble once he was off the ship and under less immediate and direct control. 
As we discussed in the Cascades episodes, at this time, Hobart was more like a work camp for the arriving convicts than a traditional prison. Apart from small lockups designed for short stays, jail buildings designed for ongoing incarceration or designed for punishment, repentance and amendment were not established until later in the 1830s. So convicts were housed in the community, either at their place of work if assigned to a free settler or in rooming houses and the like, near their work detail if undertaking government labour. Limited food rations and convict uniforms were provided by the government. The rules set out for them required that they turn up to their assigned work gang on time and they perform well, giving no trouble to their overseers. Otherwise, they had a surprising amount of agency and freedom for a convict, all things considered, particularly in comparison to convicts held later when the penitentiaries had been built. Convicts would work their allotted hours and would have time to work additional hours after 3pm for additional personal income if they could find private work and there was plenty of demand for those interested. Provided they kept out of trouble, a convict could make some financial headway towards a future life. Collins records an official reflecting, quote, The system worked well for industrious men who were able to make the most of it and work towards a ticket of leave. The ticket of leave would allow the prisoner complete freedom to work for himself, his only obligation being attendance at Sunday muster and not leaving the district without permission, unquote. And many were able to take advantage of those surprising opportunities, and they could leave the penal system and dissolve into the ordinary community in a very few years, if no further trouble brought them to the attention of the judicial system, as lengthy remissions were common for good behaviour. But some found it harder to turn their lives around. Pierce had at first been assigned to a sheep farmer, but for some reason, probably being a poor worker, after nine months his master returned him to the government. He was later reassigned to another settler, but there he took the opportunity to abscond altogether. It seems in the bush, on the edge of the settled area, he took up with four other escaped convicts, a gang of bushrangers, stealing sheep and raiding outlying huts. This bushranging by escaped and ex-convicts had been a large and very serious problem for the authorities in Van Diemen's Land reaching perhaps its peak during the administration of Davy, from whom Governor Sorrell took over in 1817. Tasmanian historian Lloyd Robson argues that during Davy's tenure, quote, the bushrangers nearly took over Van Diemen's land, and even parts of Hobart Town was not safe, unquote. Gangs of men in groups as large as 100 sometimes operated in very organised ways, like crime syndicates, sometimes working with or against various landholders, depending on arrangements made. And in more sophisticated activities than just raiding and robbing, they might supply goods through a middleman to gain funds, for example, such as sourcing kangaroo meat to be on-sold by cooperative settlers to the government stores. And in the outlining areas, you would need to be cooperative with the bushrangers for your own safety, as the government was not able to police or rein them in. One landowner said he could not live on his land for four years before 1818, so they were well embedded into the local economy and fringe communities at times. But Sorrell was determined to root them out. Sorrell did offer to negotiate convict returns without punishment to some, but along with that carrot, he also sent Bushmen out to capture them and offered rewards and incentives to those who would assist with information that would allow the soldiers to move in and capture those hiding in the bush. 
The secrecy involved helped reduce the potential retaliation for the outlying settlers, and along with some other measures to allow more control and supervision on the fringes, progress was made, reducing the problem back to sporadic and local aggravations by generally smaller gangs or individuals. Still, Pierce managed to remain at large for about three months, and Collins suggests, quote, This first period of absconding toughened Pierce and taught him a little of how to survive in the Tasmanian bush. It also prepared him for the ruthless personal interactions that occurred between men who were living outside normal, ordered, civilised society and whose aim was focused on personal survival, unquote. But freedom's not all it's cracked up to be, apparently. Living like that, in the unfamiliar Australian environment, must have often been an ordeal for these men, perhaps making a work gang in Hobart look more attractive again after some time living in the bush. At least in Hobart, you'd have more varied company and easy access to sly grog. When the government offered an amnesty to those who had absconded, to return to the authorities and the convict system in Hobart Town with no penalty... Pierce and his companions took the opportunity to surrender. Under this amnesty, such men could receive a complete pardon for their earlier escape, going wholly unpunished, unless they had committed murder or highway or house robbery with violence while on the run. But settling back into the required government work of their original sentence and keeping their heads down would have been expected after that lucky escape from the lash. But again, Collins reminds us that some convicts just couldn't focus on the opportunities offered. As one official noted, quote, Others, such as notorious thieves, pickpockets and housebreakers, do not work in their after hours. Their free time is principally spent in lounging about the streets, gambling and robbing at night, unquote. So for some, the temptation to spend their personal hours drinking or gambling, or at some other less than appropriate pastime, was strong. Indeed, too strong to be resisted by the likes of Pierce. And while the police often turned a blind eye to those establishments catering to the convicts, probably receiving some dodgy backhander for doing so, Pierce was several times charged with breaking the 9pm curfew and with drunkenness, and returning to his previous criminal ways to raise cash for grog and other entertainments would also have been irresistible. The first re-offence listed on his local record occurred in May of 1821 when he was charged with, quote, embezzling two turkeys and three ducks, unquote, for which he received the punishment of 50 lashes and to work on the chain gang for 14 days, being locked in the local watchhouse overnight. In September, he was sentenced to 25 lashes for being drunk and disorderly and absent from his lodgings. In mid-November, he was again found drunk and disorderly and sentenced to 50 lashes. Then, only three days later, he was charged with stealing a wheelbarrow, earning him another 50 lashes, which must have been excruciating on top of the previous flogging injuries, which couldn't have been healed in that time. And he was to serve on the jail gang for six months, presumably once he was fit, given that repeat flogging. So it seemed that without constant supervision, Pierce could not manage to live within the law. Around this time, he had also forged a money order, and when this was discovered, it would have attracted further substantial punishment. So, at the next opportunity, he once again took to the bush. This time, he was recaptured after about 10 weeks on the run, appearing in court in July 1822 to answer that forgery charge and for absconding. Pierce was clearly incorrigible. This time, the authorities would need to take more severe action. 
His record to that point certainly showed him being somewhat undisciplined and continuing his petty crime, but he wasn't showing signs of the extreme violence or highly antisocial behaviour that might have indicated what he would be capable of later. His desire for alcohol was probably more damaging to himself and his prospects than to the wider community, perhaps, at this time. Collins sums him up more harshly, though, saying, quote, By now the convict system was bringing out the worst in Pierce's personality. Looking back over his record, we see an impulsive, angry, aggressive drunk who's learned nothing from experience, including his various arrests and floggings. He was happy to dob in his mates when it suited him. His brief stints on assignment probably indicate that he was an unreliable worker. Unquote. Those who kept reoffending and who could not be turned around by the lash and the chain gangs were deemed the worst of the worst and remote places of secondary punishment had been set up to hold and discipline such difficult men. Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour was one such place. Pierce's chances had run out. He was condemned to serve the remainder of his sentence at the new Macquarie Harbour penal settlement, and within weeks he was sailing through Hell's Gates, as the treacherous and difficult entrance to Macquarie Harbour was called. Certainly there was a hell within for the men destined to serve there. Collins writes that around 6% of convicts progressed to places of secondary punishment. Now that's actually a mercifully small percentage and less than I had initially imagined, probably because a lot of the interesting stories come from that small percentage of troublesome convicts, making them overrepresented in our minds perhaps, but also because of the images we might have conjured up from classic Australian fiction such as Marcus Clarke's For the Term of His Natural Life which painted some horrendous pictures of these places, and the author did actually base one of its most heinously violent characters on an exaggerated version of Pierce. Before any penitentiaries had been built in Van Diemen's Land, these places of secondary punishment would house the recidivists and the hard men. In the earliest days, the toughest cases would be sent to work hard labour on Norfolk Island or Newcastle, north of Sydney. Later, Port Macquarie in New South Wales also became a place of secondary punishment, along with Moreton Bay in Queensland. But these places were a long way from Hobart, and Governor Sorrell had long been lobbying for the creation of a site in Van Diemen's Land. So in December of 1821, perhaps before it had even been officially sanctioned, Sorrell had sent a contingent off to Sarah Island in Macquarie Harbour to set up a remote penal settlement there for the purpose of secondary punishment. 111 prisoners were also sent along to undertake the labour of clearing the island and physically setting up the outpost. Sorrell and his planners considered the Macquarie Harbour site too far from civilisation to be a problem should anyone attempt escape. Being isolated in the extreme and worked to near exhaustion, the convicts would be less likely to cause trouble. Of course, the authorities could still administer further punishments, such as floggings, reductions in their already meagre rations, and other extreme penalties, such as isolating and chaining a troublesome convict to a rock outcrop in the freezing harbour for a given time, if deemed necessary. Their intention at Macquarie Harbour was to provide an environment which would lead to, quote, moral improvement through a rigid course of discipline, strictly and systematically enforced, the constant, active and unremitting employment of every individual convict in very hard labour is the grand and main design of the isolated outposts, unquote. They were to be places of ultra-banishment and punishment. 
Sorrell suggested that his Sarah Island outpost could fund itself, and that would have been a very welcome prospect to the authorities. The Surveyor General Evans had reported there was a great deal of the coveted hewn pine around the eastern side of the harbour, along with other good quality timber, and that the surrounding country looked formidably rugged and so closely wooded and strung with impenetrable vines and brushwood as to be next to impossible to escape through certainly not for the distance required to reach the east coast, and there were coal deposits around the harbour. The convicts would be used as virtual slave labour, working in chains, felling timber and mining coal, and the hope was that such constant hard work would break these recalcitrant men and allow them to reflect on their behaviour and their salvation for the remainder of their sentence. And it's worth reflecting on the awful conditions they were expected to endure not least undertaking this hard labour, working often in the water of the harbour, sometimes still wearing their heavy shackles, and in a demoralising bleak and cold environment where it rains more days than not. The timber gangs would be working with axes and saws, felling gigantic trees like the hue and pine, or working with the unyielding hardwoods, hauling their lumber into the rivers and harbour and lashing them together to float them back to Sarah Island so they would often be working in the cold, tannin-stained water. The clothing issued was not up to the task of keeping them warm in such an environment, but its colouring was designed to make convicts instantly recognisable. Their yellow pants were made of a light material close to canvas, and they were issued with a short woolen coat, half yellow and half black. They were also supplied with a shirt, boots, a neckcloth and cap, and the uniform was often referred to as one's canaries, a reference to the colour, no doubt. Convicts who were deemed troublesome might be required to undertake this physical work with their leg irons still in place, so it must have been appallingly uncomfortable. Control of food was also a big part of the strict regime for discouraging escape. Collins records their weekly rations as 10 pounds of bread, 7 of salt beef or pork, and 28 ounces across the week of gruel a thin cereal-based soup with added meat or vegetables when available. But this food was provided on a daily basis, so there was little chance it could be traded or hoarded to build a store of provisions for escape, and the calories provided would barely cover the physical exertion required in undertaking the hard labour. They must have been perpetually hungry. Sometimes when supplies were scarce, they must have been at risk of scurvy too. Honestly, they could hardly have made eating your fellow man a more attractive prospect, really, with this near-starvation diet. So we'll set the scene now around Macquarie Harbour. Wiki describes the Tasmanian West Coast climate as, quote, a much cooler and wetter climate compared to the East Coast. Frequent low-pressure systems hit the West Coast, causing heavy rain, snow and ice. The West Coast ranges blocks these systems from impacting the East, therefore making the West Coast a rain catchment, with some areas receiving over 2,000 millimetres, that's 79 inches, of rain a year. In winter, temperatures at sea level hover around 10 degrees Celsius, that's 50 Fahrenheit, and when not raining, morning frost is common. The temperatures are much lower inland from the coast, with maximums in winter often failing to surpass 0 degrees Celsius, that's 32 Fahrenheit. Now, don't get me wrong, Tassie's a wonderful place to visit, but you'll certainly need a good warm coat. 
mountain ranges run roughly north-south along the western half of the island, ranging from 600 metres high to 1,600 metres. That's uh, around 2,000 to 5,200 feet, which, as mentioned above, collects and shields the east coast from much of the worst weather coming in from the southern ocean's roaring 40s. The dense, wet, cool rainforest and waterlogged or water-carved terrain made crossing these ranges to the eastern settled areas all but unsurvivable for the non-Indigenous newcomers. It was this spectacularly high rainfall and cool climate that allowed the relatively small forests of hue and pine to thrive over the previous millennia in that rugged area around the harbour. Hue and pine was particularly attractive for shipbuilding because its natural oils retard the growth of destructive fungus, giving it great durability. It has the most beautiful smell and is exceptionally easy to work, so it's obvious to see why it was such a desirable timber. Mature trees reach around 30 metres high, that's 95 feet, but it's extremely slow growing. It didn't take much more than around 100 years of logging to bring the hue and pine to the brink of disaster before being placed on the endangered species list. Fortunately, they have been granted protected status and it's now illegal to cut down living trees, though a small number are made available for craft wood or historical ship repairs from naturally fallen timber under a strict licensing system. Most of the large mature trees were taken prior to protection, and while they still grow in the west around that harbour area today, the young trees will require many hundreds of years to reach maturity. Thinking about how quickly those large hewn pines were almost completely obliterated, Collins commented that the mature trees the convicts were felling by hand, quote, could have been saplings when Socrates flourished in Athens 2,500 years ago, unquote. There was other, less ecologically fragile species of interest around the harbour too, and this timber was also a useful resource for the fledgling colony. The mined coal and the timber harvested was expected to bring in an income to cover the Macquarie Harbour running costs, and that site was the only one to achieve that aim, despite its isolation, its high running costs and its short life. The coal deposits proved to be very poor quality and next to useless for income production, but the timber getting became even more profitable when they value added and actually began boat building on site in 1824. In fact, it was the most productive boat building site in Australia, producing 96 vessels in its brief period of operation. And for those who were cooperative and served their time in the shipyard, they could re-enter society with some skills that remained in demand for a long time. However, Sarah Island only operated for about 12 years all up, closing in 1831, the preferred place of secondary punishment being moved to the more manageable site on the narrow-necked peninsula at Port Arthur. The terrain surrounding the harbour was dominated by the nearby 1144-metre-3,700-foot Mount Sorel, and not too far off, the jagged peak of Frenchman's Cap pierced the sky at the end of the harbour at 1446 metres, or about 4,745 foot. The prodigious rainfall created deep and often fast-flowing and exceptionally cold rivers draining the area, such as the Gordon and the Franklin Rivers. To traverse west to east from Macquarie Harbour would require crossing many ranges, starting with Mount Sorel, then there would be the Engineer Range, Deception Range, King William Range, and many others, as well as the many formidable rivers in between. Though, of course, most of this topography was still unnamed, at least for the Europeans at the time. 
and those first crossing these areas would really have very little idea of what was ahead of them. Besides the mountains, there are some open plains between the peaks, often consisting of boggy, wet, grassy or mossy open terrain. So, unlike much of the forested areas, strung with thick vines and with a base of deep, matted, rotting vegetation on the ground, the plains might be clear of overhanging debris and be brighter to walk in, but they were still challenging and tiring to cross. But until you had been out in it, you probably could not imagine just how difficult the terrain was, and many a desperate convict imagined giving it a go. Despite the extreme isolation of Sarah Island and the seeming hopelessness of any escape attempt, Pierce became one of eight men desperate enough to try. The other men involved were Alexander Dalton, Thomas Boddenham, William Kennelly, one Edward or William, or in Pierce's confession document, James Brown, John Mather, Matthew Travers and Robert Greenhill. It's not entirely clear who first raised the idea of escape within Pierce's workgroup, logging on the north of the harbour around Kelly's Basin, but Greenhill emerged as their de facto leader of sorts and assured the group that they could do it. He was a forceful personality, no doubt, but as a former sailor, he claimed to be able to navigate using the sun and stars, and so became the crucial linchpin to any chance of success in making it pretty much anywhere away from Macquarie Harbour. Sarah Island itself was quite small, only 600 metres long and 150 metres wide, and this area housed the authorities, a supply depot, army barracks and the convict dormitory, where the prisoners slept at night. The convicts were allocated to particular work groups, and each morning the group would be rowed to the various work sites around the harbour for the day, either mining or wood harvesting, or other tasks like shipbuilding. Most would return at night to the island for muster. So there were periods when they were under less supervision than on Sarah Island, often only under the supervision of one overseer, who might be a convict rising in the ranks himself. But the authorities thought the likelihood of men absconding was fairly small, the mountains and thick bush all around, and their situation so far from the meagre belt of civilization around Hobart would have made the concept of escape from any such work party pretty daunting. But a few desperate men, such as Pearson Greenhill and the like, would consider the risk acceptable, and attempts were regularly made. In fact, in the early months of Macquarie Harbour's operations, in March of 1822, eight convicts did abscond from their harbour site into the surrounding bush. Two soldiers and three armed convict overseers and their two dogs set off soon afterwards in pursuit. But Collins records that none were ever heard of again. All 13 men presumed lost and perished in the bush. <laughs> Nothing mentioned about the dog. Despite the dire warnings from the authorities, the potential for failure didn't seem to bother a lot of men. Such was their desire to leave their hellish incarceration. And indeed, their lack of knowledge about what was out there probably gave little reason for hesitation. Hughes, in his book, The Fatal Shore, claims that in 1822 and 23, one man in ten disappeared from Macquarie Harbour. Ten percent rising to one in seven by 1824. But consensus is that most of them attempting their escapes overland were, quote, supposed to have perished in the woods, unquote. Still, probably not a concern for the authorities, though, provided the escapees were not making it back to civilization, and once they stopped sending their own men into danger chasing after them. But either Pierce's work group didn't know much about that story, or they didn't care. 
Indeed, Collins suggests that Greenhill will have told them the eight men had reached the settled districts and remained at large, maybe even making it off the island altogether, and the story of their disappearance was spread simply to frighten and discourage anyone else from trying. But they'll do it easier anyway. They would make their escape by water, and he had the sailing experience for the job. Their initial plan was to overpower their supervisor and use the boat to make their way out of the harbour through Hell's Gates by night, hopefully avoiding being spotted by the lookout station at the harbour entrance. If successful, that would have put them right into the treacherous wild west coast seas, taking the brunt of the Roaring Forties weather, a place that all but the most adventure-seeking sailors would largely avoid even today. Hell's Gate was a very narrow aperture, with a treacherous rip and shifting sandbars churning the water, and often wild seas from that southern ocean greeted any vessel once they got through. But despite the risks and difficulties at sea, perhaps if they had luck, and a good sailor and navigator, escape might have been possible. Indeed, escape by boat was probably the most likely successful option, if you had a seaworthy boat and a few provisions. Certainly, the authorities were wise to this potential, and only government boats were permitted to enter Macquarie Harbour and all care was taken to guard those vessels. Only a couple of months at most since his arrival, Pierce and his work gang put their plan into action. They had intended to rob a store across the harbour while the watchman there was on his way to Sarah Island. They would need those provisions to sustain themselves on their journey. But when they discovered he was to make that trip on the 20th of September, they had to bring their plans forward a little and the changes created some extra problems, and things didn't unfold as they'd hoped. On the positive side, the work gang only had one overseer on site, so overpowering him would be easy, but their navigator and de facto leader, Greenhill, had been assigned that day to a coal mining site at Coal Head, about 12 kilometres, that's nine miles, further around the harbour. So they would need to make their way there first to collect him, and doing so unobserved would be very tricky. Overseer Logan was set upon and tied to a tree. They gathered any useful items and began rowing the boat around to Greenhill's worksite. Greenhill was ready to join them when they arrived and led them to a miner's hut where they could gather other provisions. And this was essential because the men were unable to hide any food or materials on their person from Sarah Island as all was searched before boarding the boats. Obtaining supplies for an escape attempt was only one of the problems. Collins writes that additives were put into the convict bread to encourage early disintegration through fungal activity. If it wasn't eaten straight away, it would soon rot. But at the hut, they were able to take an axe, around 10 pound of flour and 6 pound of salt beef. This would be the best they could do until they reached the supply hut near Hell's Gates as planned. They also doused the pre-prepared wood pyres with water to make lighting them difficult. These pyres dotted around all the work sites were ready to act as smoke signals to the Sarah Island headquarters if an escape or other dangerous problem arose. Guards were always on the lookout and would send troops to investigate. So Pierce's party would want them out of action so the alarm could not be easily raised when someone noticed them missing. It would have been around midday when they loaded the meagre provisions into the boat and started rowing but they soon noted signal fires had been lit along the coast, and they would be unlikely to be able to continue across the water without soon being intercepted. The guards at Hell's Gates would also be receiving semaphore messaging, advising them to be ready to capture the escapees. 
So they decided to head back to shore and attempt their escape on foot through the bush instead, disembarking where a creek enters the harbour, just north of Coalhead. For some reason, Greenhill and Travers encouraged the group to smash up the boat. Now an escape through the bush was their only option. But he assured them that he could navigate their way east, where they were bound to cross the settled areas north of Hobart. What they cannot have known was that heading pretty much due east would send them up and over range after range, across deep rivers and boggy plains, through country that was so dense and difficult to walk in that they could barely make progress. But I guess they were committed once the plan was enacted, and having made the attempt, they were in for a world of painful punishment if they surrendered now anyway. So, dividing up the rations and equipment to share the load, off they went into the wilderness. After about three kilometres through the forest, they reached some open country, and by 3pm they'd made good distance. But they needed to get over the range and out of sight of any pursuers, so they began climbing Mount Sorel, keeping to the most covered areas where possible, but found they were often exposed to a potential telescope, and they reached the top by nightfall. As it turned out, it looks like no soldiers were sent in pursuit, or at least not to follow them into the bush. After the loss of the men pursuing the escapees in March, rather than risking his own men, maybe the commandant would rely on the terrain and the difficulties of living in the bush to turn the convicts back in the days to come. Or he could report them as likely dead, as he had done for that last lot. Pierce's companions lit a fire once they were out of direct line of sight of Sarah Island, but the rain came in and the temperature dropped drastically with nightfall. No doubt they passed an uncomfortably chilly night, but they would have been somewhat buoyed to have made it this far and be on their way to freedom. In the following days they would sometimes be walking on open, rocky ridges, sometimes climbing and descending steep, rocky mountainsides, and other times forcing their way through the dense and unforgiving temperate jungle of sorts, what Pierce described as, quote, very rough country, unquote. Collins explains just how difficult these forested areas must have been to travel through. Quote, in a mature rainforest, these trees form a dense canopy that can vary in height from 7 to 36 metres. The ground is littered with rotten fallen tree branches. There are great festoons of vines and mosses, as well as large and small tree ferns. Climbing over fallen trees and pushing their way past branches and vines, the escapees often fell, cutting themselves and putting a terrible strain on their bodies. Unquote. These areas contain vegetation known as horizontal scrub. That's bush so dense it cannot be walked through, but only on. Pierce recorded, quote, We were obliged to be walking upon these never-dry, slippery branches covered with moss as much as 20 feet, that's 6 metres, above the ground, which, being in many instances rotten, occasioned us many awkward falls and tore our clothes to rags. We were not able to force our way on 500 yards in an hour in some of those horrid scrubs, unquote. And we've yet to even mention the aptly described cutting grass and the leeches. So the euphoria of those first few days would have worn off pretty quickly as the completely foreign landscape provided challenge after challenge. At five foot three and described as thin and wiry though strong, 32-year-old Pierce would have found the extreme physical labour expected of the Sarah Island work gangs very hard slog, but, as it would turn out, it would harden him up for the even more arduous task of making his way through Tasmania's wilderness. But some in the group were older and not in such good condition, so for them, negotiating this terrain was even more punishing. 
modern-day hikers still find this area very difficult, and Pierce's group would have been the first Europeans entering those remote and rugged areas. They would probably have travelled through their marina country. And while the people would have been familiar with the terrain and landscape, being part of the big river country, they probably avoided making their way through the worst of it, using well-worn paths that only they knew, taking easier routes through the area. And just as an aside, Collins records an interesting geological feature in the locality. Just a few days in, the men would have passed by an area we now call the Darwin Crater, a place where a meteorite hit the ground 750,000 years ago, causing glass-like silicate to form around the site, which was prized and widely traded between the various Aboriginal groups across the island. Pierce records some evidence of local Aboriginal people being nearby during the many weeks they were struggling through, and no doubt they were being observed more often than they knew, but wisely the local people left this group of white men to their own devices. I'll put an image of the map Collins created to show the likely path of their escape, based on Pierce's descriptions, and certainly you can get an idea of the range of environments by googling the Franklin Gordon Wilderness area but I'll also put a few images on the Australian Histories podcast website. Remember, though, that almost nothing in that wilderness was named at that time, at least by the British, and in looking for their few known landmarks, they often mistook one river for another, one mountain for another, so it's not at all clear exactly where they might have been at any one time. Collins and Sprod have probably produced the most likely routes from the evidence available, and the men seem to have made quite a steady easterly course so Greenhill probably did have the navigation skills he professed. That any new chum European could trek through that uncharted terrain, let alone near-starved convicts, with next to no supplies and certainly no idea of what was ahead of them, was quite amazing. In November of 2008, a group of highly experienced hikers attempted to retrace the probable path of Pierce's group through the still tremendously rugged bush, using Coal Point as their starting point. They called their venture the Cannibal Run. (laughs) I'll include a link to the article they wrote in the Australian Geographic recounting their attempt through what is now the World Heritage Wilderness Area in Tasmania's southwest. I'm pleased to report they managed to get through without resorting to eating each other. But it was a spectacularly gruelling trek. Even for those well-trained, experienced hikers, each carrying around 30 kilogram packs with high-quality, lightweight equipment and food. Not long after leaving Coal Point, they described the vegetation soon engulfing them. It's a very interesting read. We also talked about Lady and Sir John Franklin trekking into Macquarie Harbour from the east, a little further south than Pierce and his fellow convicts, in episode 37. Though they did have the colony's surveyor and a large retinue of their own convict labour to cut a path through ahead of them. And of course, Franklin himself would go on to lead a fateful Arctic expedition, which would end up having its own cannibalism suspicions. (laughs) Still, for the Franklin foray into the Macquarie, it rained non-stop, took twice as long as was intended, and some in the party had to return to bring back extra provisions. A small price to pay, I say, to escape the fate of everyone looking hungrily sideways at each other for days on end. (laughs) We noted how... The Franklin's Tasmanian travel was marred by the persistent wet weather, so typical for that area, and Morris's group in 2008 reported that during, quote, our 22-day trek, only seven were free of rain, hail or snow. In any case, even the smallest shower ensured we stayed sodden for days, unquote. So they had a good run, really. 
Pierce's much less prepared group also experienced this miserable environment, but with less warm clothing, no shelter and few provisions. Keep in mind, it was winter in Tasmania. We can imagine how such an experience could drive men to desperation. Morris noted of his group's experience, quote, Despite lugging the latest navigation gear, we found it at times impossible to maintain orientation in the silent, thick understory, a barrera, melaleuca, hakia, cutting grass and banksia that combines to form a multi-dimensional spider's web, often concealing rock escarpments. The damp smell of rotting, moss-covered vegetation was ever-present. We developed a range of bush-bashing techniques, climbing atop the scrub and, precariously perched metres above the ground, moving forward, pulling the scrub down from head to knee height standing on it and repeating this action for each step, and occasionally collectively pushing as hard as possible to break individual vines that were ultimately impassable. Pierce, with understatement, described it as very rough country. At times, we were surrounded by dense bush with visibility restricted to one metre, unquote. Morris's hikers reached the Franklin River crossing on day 10. Pierce and his companions arrived there 11 days into their trek, so it was a spectacularly impressive feat, but a pace they could not keep up without sustenance. As the days progressed, and they found they must traverse range after exhausting range, under such arduous conditions, any camaraderie they began with must have been wearing thin. By day four, with the engineer's range ahead, Brown was flagging, and Pierce recorded, detained us much, and he noted the constant rain was making them all far more miserable than we was. Collins suggests they might have covered perhaps 23 kilometres measured in a straight line by then, but obviously much more distance on the ground. It was a cracking pace given the environment. They must have been exhausted, and concerningly, their provisions were now depleted. Collins reminds us that, quote, besides starvation, they would have been suffering from cuts, scratches, bruises, sprains and abrasions, many of them quite serious, from frequently falling over. In the type of country they had traversed, you regularly slip and slide and fall over both backwards and forwards, many times every day. Many of these wounds would have become infected, especially those caused by the cutting grass. On the slippery ground, they would have fallen over in filthy slime, which sticks to any exposed surface. They would have been bitten by insects and had their blood sucked by leeches. Their poor physical state would have engendered depression." Unquote not to mention the mild hypothermia effects induced by the cold. The first Australians probably avoided the worst of that terrain, but with their skills to hunt, track and forage for the edible resources across their country, they were able to find food and game in this wilderness, but the convicts, for whom the whole country was unfamiliar, apparently did not have luck even seeing much local game, let alone catching it, as their supplies dwindled, so the walk would have become ever more desperate. Pierce recorded that only a few days in, some began talking of turning back, that they were doubting the possibility of making it through the bush to the east, though Greenhill and Travers continued to insist it was possible. It's worth noting here that Greenhill and Travers had quite a close bond, having worked together previously on the outskirts of New Norfolk. In fact, Collins states Travers was serving his time and making some progress towards a new life, renting land and running his own sheep on it with no further trouble with the law until taking up with Greenhill. Greenhill was quite the poor influence and Travers, despite being pretty settled until then, absconded a couple of times with Greenhill, 
bringing him additional punishment and eventually sending them both to Macquarie Harbour. They remained quite a close and supportive unit at Sarah Island and for a good part of their tribulations in the bush. Though they'd made good progress so far, on the fifth day they struggled to make much headway and on the sixth a rest day was necessary. Both physically and mentally they were becoming exhausted and beginning to unravel. No doubt the lack of food was now affecting them and Collins suggests they were probably suffering from mild hypothermia, encouraging inertia and pessimism. Psychologically, the mood turned very dark, and Pierce claims it was this night that someone declared he was, quote, so hungry he could eat a piece of man, unquote. Uh-oh. If that thought was not already in the minds of others, certainly that comment would have put it there. So we must leave the story at this rather tense point today and take it up again in the next episode. And if you've got a bad feeling about where this story might go, you'd be on the money. In the immortal words of weddings, parties, anything, in their song, A Tale They Won't Believe in Hobart. When we left Macquarie Harbour, it was in the pouring rain. None of us quite sure if we would see England again. Some fool muttered death on liberty and There were six of us together A jolly hungry crew And as the days went by You know our hunger quickly grew and Some fool muttered death on liberty So that night we made fires Out of twigs and out of bark And our stomachs they rumbling All through the night so dark Wondering, trying to keep ourselves alive And when the sun it rose next morning Well, a six and ten to five And I said, right, this is another one Don't you frown, to the meat And hold it down, it's a tale they won't believe When I get down to Hobart Town So this episode, I'm going to draw your attention to the podcast called Heroes and Howlers And the rest is history Hosted by Mikey Robbins and Paul Wilson, they provide a quizzical look at some of history's quirkiest moments. They describe it as revealing the cock-ups, the mishaps, the bizarre twists of fate that have changed the course of mankind. Sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, sometimes just plain stupid. (laughs) And the stories are international. So, as always, I'll put the link to Heroes and Howlers and the rest is history on my Australian Histories podcast webpage. Have a listen and see if it grabs you. Just before I wrap up, can I also ask again, for those who use Spotify to listen and who love the show, would you mind going to your login to Spotify and giving the podcast a super-duper five-star rating? Almost 50% of my listeners get access via Spotify, and the rating option is only new. So I'm hoping to boost my ranking on Spotify so that new Australian history fans there will be able to find this podcast more easily. So I'll talk to you very soon with the next instalment of Pierce's Adventure. Take care now. Cheers. Cheers.